Our scripture reading today comes from the book of John, the 21st chapter. Then when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these do? He replied, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus told him, Feed my lambs. Jesus said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He replied, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus told him, Shepherd my sheep. Jesus said a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was distressed that Jesus asked him a third time, Do you love me? He said, The Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus replied, Feed my sheep. The word of the Lord. It's good to be back here uh, this morning. Thanks for having me. I think I overheard this morning somebody in the back, maybe part of the worship team, mentioning uh, maybe they were a teacher. Do you have any teachers? Paul, I know you're a teacher. Any other teachers? Oh, there you go. Okay. So before launching Ace in the City about 10 years ago, I was a uh, history and economics teacher at Spring Lake Park High School up in the northern suburbs. And uh, it was my job to try and convince my 10th and 11th grade students that economics and history were important enough and relevant enough today, and so much so that it was, it was justifiable for taxpayer dollars for us to dissect it and discuss it for 175 days out of the year. Here's how the first day of school usually worked. Uh, think high school if you can. You would get these massive textbooks. I mean, it, they were three, 400 pages like this. And, and here's how it would work. First day of school, some students would zone me out two minutes in. That's how good of a teacher I was, zone me out. And then, and then there would be the hand in the back, usually, of, of some smart aleck student saying, Hey, uh, Mr. Anderson, why should we even care about the federal bank or the war of 1812? It was, it was like clockwork, first day of school, every, every time, every new semester. And I think my response to them caught them off guard because I would reply and I'd say, listen, I don't care about the Federal Bank. And I don't care about the War of 1812. And I actually don't care if you don't care about them either. What I care about is you see how the federal bank impacts communities. That's what I care about. And I care about how you see how the War of 1812, how we related to each other in that, cause and effect types of things. Because we're not so different today. I saw my job as social studies teacher to be less concerned about kings and queens and dates and wars and more about how the kings and queens and dates and wars impacted each other, how they related to each other. And as a teacher, I saw my job threefold. One, I want to broaden my students' perspective. Two, I want to develop their ability to think critically at something. I don't care what it is the latest Kanye West song or video games, whatever you want. I just want you to think critically about something and grow in that. And number three, to inspire the art of good questions. 
good questions. What can a good question do? A good question can convict. A good question can inspire. A good question can encourage. A good question can be a catalyst for reflection, catalyst for positive and changed behavior. A good question can set you on the right path, facing in the right direction with the right tools to get you where you need to go. A good question can do all of these things and more. Which brings us to the text this morning. A good framework as we look about look at Jesus and his interaction, resurrected Jesus with his disciples at the shore. Good question. For the disciples, for some of the disciples, this was where it all began, on the shore. Three years or so before, going about what they thought would be the rest of their life, fishing. And Jesus appears to some of them and says, hey, come follow me, and they drop in nets and follow. In this text, we find Jesus in a similar place on the shore. Disciples are fishing. And this time he has a different agenda. And the encounter that he has with his disciples, and in particular Peter, will change the trajectory of their lives, and in particular Peter's, for the, rest of, for the rest of their lives. I'm going to read it again because it's very short. Uh, follow with me. This is again from um, the book of John. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. Peter said, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord. I'm inserting that voice. Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. Third time he asked, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question the third time. He said, Lord... You know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Now, when you look at it, when you hear it, it appears like a very simple and straightforward progression of questions. Not even progression. The same question asked, very slight nuance, three times. But when we dig a little bit deeper, a whole new set of questions comes out of it. And that's that's the art of a good question. A good question brings up sometimes more questions out of it when you look at it further. Here are some of the questions that I have, and and you might have your own set, and that's great. If you notice, why did Jesus call him Simon, son of John? Granted, that was his birth name, which makes sense. But Jesus gave Simon, son of John, his new name, Peter. He was the one who gave the name to him, and yet in this passage, he refrains from calling him the name that he had given him. Why does he do that? Why did Jesus include in the first question the comparative more than these? Do you love me more than these? Meaning, Peter, rest of disciples, do you love me more than they do? Those are fighting words. And if you know how, how in previous contexts in the Gospels, we see the disciples fighting about who loves Jesus the most. 
It's as if Jesus is maybe setting up another conflict, another argument. Third question that comes to my mind, why does Jesus ask the question three times, but then offer three different solutions to the question that he's asking? Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. It's a whole other sermon series to unpack that, but those are different things that is asked of you in those three commands. Why does Jesus do that? Fourth and fifth, we don't see this in the English text that we read. You have to dig a little deeper in the Greek, but when Jesus asked Peter the first two times, do you love me? Jesus is using agape as a definition of love in that text. Agape is the highest form of love. It's, it's, it's a sacrificial kind, the kind that costs you something. Peter, in response uses a different form of the word of love. Phileo, which means brotherly or sisterly love, the love that you have for a friend. So let me paint this for you. Jesus is saying, do you love me so much that you would sacrifice for me? Peter, yes, you know I love you like a friend. Second time, Jesus, do you love me in a way that you would sacrifice for me? Yeah, Jesus, you know I love you like a brother. Why does he do that? Third, interaction, or the third question, and again, you don't see this in the text. Jesus ditches agape love. And he says, third time around, Peter, do you phileo love me? Peter's getting good at this answer. He says, yeah, you know I love you like a brother. Why does Jesus do that? It's as if, is he, is he lowering the bar of what it means to be a disciple? Is he, is he compromising his definition of love? Of Hey, forget everything I've taught you the last three years of sacrificing yourself. And just love me like a friend. What is it that Jesus is doing? What's going on? The good thing about a good question is it oftentimes sparks new questions. And one of the things that I love about Jesus is he was someone who used stories and questions to drive his ministry. That was it. The bulk of his ministry were stories and questions. And they were so good that here we are some 2,000 plus years later and those same stories and those same questions are still changing the world. Crazy when you think about that. Jesus, so it seems, was less concerned about kings and queens and dates and wars and Sabbath and laws and customs and even your view on God and more concerned about how you arrived there and maybe most importantly, how that lived and breathed in and through your life. That's what Jesus was concerned about. Jesus was a master teacher and like any master teacher in any craft, he engaged his audience in a way that gave room for his audience to reflect, to think critically, and to discern how to apply that in their own life. This passage brings us to the end of John, the last of the Gospels. And this was the last, according to John, interaction we have with Peter and Jesus. 
And what do we know about Peter from this point through the rest of the New Testament? We see a man who goes about one of the greatest spiritual journeys known to our faith. And this was the last, according to John, interaction we have. It was as if this interaction pushed him and propelled him on the journey that he would go on. And by the way, it was a journey that didn't end in phileo love. Church tradition holds that, Jesus, or that Peter died a sacrificial death. It was as almost as if Jesus saw something in Peter that Peter didn't even know was there. He affirmed something in him that even Peter did not see. Good questions make all the difference in the world. So this morning, uh, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to leave you with two questions. I'm not saying they're of Jesus' status. It's the B game this weekend, so I'll do my best. But here's the deal. I think Jesus, the reason why he was so set on asking good questions and on telling rich stories was because the audience that he was engaging came there, or you are coming here from different places. You're coming here with different bruises and baggage and backgrounds, which means the filter that you're using to receive stories and to receive good questions will bring you to different places. And that's okay. I believe the Spirit has the power to meet you where you are and to move you forward where you are, regardless of the bruises you bring here today, the baggage you bring with you, and the brokenness of your life. So that's my goal today, is to raise two questions. And my hope and my challenge for you is to go home and and, and even here to sit on those. Think critically about those. Challenge yourself in those. And then find the ways that the Spirit might be prompting you to apply those in your life, knowing that yours might be different than yours, and that's fine. That's not even fine, that's good. So to get to these questions, I want to share a story. Back in the sixth grade, I had a crush on this girl named Joy. Now, Joy was cute and athletic and popular, and she was a seventh grader. Now, back in my middle school days, we didn't have cell phones, so word passed around via passing notes. And word passed via passing notes from Joy to Kim to Brittany to Bethany to Andy to Paul and then finally to me that Joy also had a crush on little lowly Tim. It was a fall fling. And I remember not having any idea what I was doing. She was my first girlfriend, whatever that meant at the sixth grade. I had no idea, but... Here's the conclusion I came to. I need to continue to impress Joy. Because if I continue to impress her of how cool or fill in the blank I was, good things, surely this would work. Transition to fall cross country. I'd never run cross country before. But guess what? Joy was running it. 
and all my basketball buddies were running it. So I ran cross country and told everybody that I was running it with my basketball buddies to get me in shape for basketball, which was a lie. I ran cross country to spend time with Joy and to impress her. It was a glorious fall afternoon, first week in October, and we are gearing for our first race. Air was crisp and beautiful. And I find myself at the starting line ready for my race. And I've got my new sneakers. Check. And I've got my new shorts. Check. And I got my new headband because headbands were cool in the day. Check. And I was ready for my first race. I approached the starting line. And all I could see was joy 300 meters ahead, 200 meters ahead. She had just uh, ran her race, and now she was standing kind of out there ready to cheer me on. My adrenaline, maybe my hormones were pumping. And I told myself, I'm going to win this race for joy. I'm going to win this, play, this race for love and for all that was middle school sacred. So the gun blasted, and I, okay, this is cross-country, this isn't track, but shotgun, blast, and I sprint out of the gate, running faster than I have ever run before because I needed to win the race, I needed to impress Joy. 200 or wherever she was, 300 meters into the race, I catch up with Joy, and we lock eyes. And I could tell in that moment, she's impressed. Because every other runner is behind me. Another way stated, every other runner was behind her boyfriend. Everybody was playing catch-up to sweet middle school romance. And I was good, really good, until a minute or so later. My legs began aching. My calves were burning. My lungs were desperate for air. And all I could feel was a subtle feeling in my stomach that the Italian dunkers I had earlier that day weren't going in the right direction. There was this big bend in the race, maybe half a mile in. And I found myself around that first bend, at the time winning, and then off path about 20 feet to a group of bushes. Throwing up like I have never thrown up in my life. I finished second to last that day. Somehow, someone did worse than me, and I found out after the fact that it was my, my good buddy, John Marty, who got disqualified for trying to take a shortcut. <laughs> that was my first ever race. Joy broke up with me five days later via passing notes from Kim to Bethany to Brittany to Andy to Paul to me. Love... <clears throat> 
makes you do the craziest of things. When you're in love, you will do anything to grow and mature that love. You will climb any mountain, cross any tree, cross any sea, take down any enemy. Love compels you to go the distance. You'll run any race. And so as we celebrate Valentine's Day last week, as we approach this text, as we talk about the art of good questions, and in light of this story, the the question for me wasn't, Tim, how far will you go? Perhaps a better question was, how will you go? How will you go? I ran the distance for joy. I completed the race. The problem wasn't the distance. The problem was how I went about running the distance. The how, for me, was the difference between pride and complete and utter embarrassment. Something that my basketball buddies would not let go of all season long. The how, for me, was the difference between a prize and the purple participation ribbon. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, run the race as if to win the prize. And I doubt Paul had um, my race, my Italian dunkers in mind when he wrote about that. Love compels you, love compels us to go the distance. But requires of us to go, go about it humbly, courageously, purposefully and intentionally. Love compels us to go the difference, but invites us to do it according to the example that's been set before us. I think back to that race, and I was well-trained, believe it or not. (laughs) I had everything I needed to run my race well. I had a coach who invested in me and my team, who ran alongside me during my practice runs to teach me how to run better, smarter, and more efficiently. The issue I had was not my training. The issue was I did not execute my training very well. The issue was I got distracted. Two questions I want to leave you with this morning. The first is this. Are you even running the race? Or are you on the sidelines? I made a, I made a complete fool of myself that race. And I learned a lot about racing that day. Even more about myself that day. And I got heckled from a lot of friends for a long time. And something I at least came back to, and I think there's some truth in there, is at least I was in the race. At least I was running. And I wasn't sidelined. Yeah, I was distracted, but I was running. And I think the encouragement that, that is in that question is this. Maybe some of you are here today, and you know you're distracted. Maybe you know after every step, you're making a mistake. 
And in your own life, you find yourself 20 feet off the path, throwing up in the group of bushes over there. Maybe that's your life right now. And to that, the encouragement is good news. Jesus is enough. The past is the past is the past. And one of the great things that I love about our God is this. We have plans to successfully run a race well. And then we get into that race and we fail. And we fall down and we falter. And when that happens, plan B becomes God's new plan A. Because God is in the business of making all things new. So even when we fall, even when we fail, God uses this as something to strengthen us and make us better and make us more like him. So the first question that I have is, are you in this race? Or are you on the sidelines? Second question I have for you. Regardless of where you are in the race, maybe you're in the sidelines, fine. Maybe you're just out of the gate, fine. Maybe you're hitting that 20-mile treacherous wall that they say you hit when you run a marathon. Regardless of where you are, what is one, one challenging, costly, agape-type step you can take today to move you closer to the finish line? One thing. I want to close with, with this story before we transition to offering. I think sometimes, um, maybe all of us, but Christians included, we tend to overanalyze some things. You saw it in the Gospels, sometimes uh, Jesus would share a story and then the disciples would be like, what on earth does he mean? I have no idea. And they would think and think and think and that's good. And then Jesus would kind of Sometimes bring them back, provide a little bit of structure as their minds are going everywhere. Don't overanalyze this step. Uh, 2010, uh, my wife and I brought in a 15-year-old student from Mexico who needed a home on two weeks' notice. Uh, He was running from the cartel, uh, and the... Children's Home that my organization partners with down in Mexico called me up and said, hey, we got a kid. Can't keep him here. He's not safe. Would you be willing to to take him when you come down on your Christmas trip in two weeks? Uh, We said yes. Because we felt like it was the right thing to do, I guess. But we had no idea what we were doing. We were three years into our marriage. We didn't have any kids of our own at that point, much less 15-year-olds. And so we were overanalyzing and thinking about how on earth do we support a 15-year-old who, by the way, just so you know, we know no Spanish. We knew no Spanish, and he knew no English. So we had two weeks to prepare for a student who didn't know our language and we didn't know his. And there was no, you know, what are those books? Um, 
Or if you don't know anything, they tell you how to do it in like a... For dummies. Okay. There was no how to take in a 15-year-old who doesn't speak your own language as a 26-year-old, newlywed, for dummies, book, in two weeks' time. So we were scrambling. And we tried everything to connect with this kid. We used Google Translate, which, if you're, in case you're wondering, is good for some things, really bad trying to unpack theological statements or saying things like, see you later, alligator. Like, you're, you're doing more danger by using something in certain circumstances. We read books and we crammed for two weeks. Every Spanish word we could, at least a noun. Don't worry about putting sentences together. Just, just get words. And then we would take those words and we would go about our house and we'd put sticky notes on everything in English and in Spanish so that he knew and I knew and we could go back to a word and point at it. We got really good at charades and exaggerated arm movements and talking louder because apparently that helps... If there's a language barrier, just talk louder and with a Spanish accent. And maybe it, <laughs> it was bad. Uh, he came to us on Christmas. <clears throat> and uh, came to us in, in Minnesota, mind you. So midwinter from Mexico. They've heard of snow. They've seen it on the news. But he has never seen snow before, much less Minnesota snow. Three weeks in, after this charade fest, <clears throat> my wife and I woke up and we were preparing breakfast or something. And Rai was, Raimundo was his name, is his name. He was nowhere to be found in our house. The door, he would sleep in the first couple weeks because he wasn't in school or anything. He would sleep in until like noon was normal. Door wide open, not in there. Bathroom door wide open, not in there. We were yelling in our house. He was, he was nowhere. At this point, I am starting to have a panic attack because I'm thinking he's gone. And all those lies I was starting to believe about we're crazy, we're not doing a good job. I'm starting to actually be like, yeah, that's right. He thought he had better chances out there in January in Minnesota than at least in a home where there's heat and food. So as we're yelling and pacing and praying and freaking out, I look out the window. <clears throat> And there I see Raimundo in his new boots. Didn't know what boots were. In his new snow pants. Had no idea what snow pants were. And new gloves. Looked three times his size, bundled up. Shoveling ten inches of snow. That we had gotten the night before. And in that moment, all I wanted to do was run out. Tell him to get in here. What are you doing? But then I realized it wouldn't have mattered. You would have... 
not understood me anyway. <clears throat> and I just let him be. I let him finish what he set out to do. And what he set out to do wasn't rocket science. What he set out to do was to put aside his ideal morning, which was sleeping in and staying warm for the sake of my wife and I. And shoveling 10 inches of snow that I, quite frankly, did not want to shovel. Um, I learned from Raimundo that day that love knows no borders. Love is something that transcends culture. It transcends language. Um, I learned from Raimundo that day that... We can overcomplicate a lot of things, including how do we love well. But my encouragement today is we think about what is one thing that we can do wherever we are on this race that moves us closer to the finish line. I learned from Armunda that day that love is not overly complicated. Move beyond your Google Translate. Move beyond your sticky notes. And find a way today to love somebody in a way that costs you something. Costs you something. The way from here to the finish line in a way that is run well as if to win the prize is run through acts of sacrificial love. So my two questions again as we close. First question, are you running the race? And secondly, regardless of where you are, what is one step in the right direction that you can take toward the finish line? What is one way that you can love somebody that will cost you something? Uh, These questions are your homework. I can't do them for you. And I also know that everybody will Respond to them differently. And again, I encourage you, that's an okay and good thing. And as we close, I want to close with this encouragement. In Jesus and in the cross, in case we're thinking about what's the example set before us, we see a love that goes the distance. We see love at its greatest, love at its purest, love at its strongest. We see love that costs something. We see love that is reckless and transforming and worth following. A love that's redeeming and restoring and reconciling all things to each other and all things to him just like it once was and just like it will be one day. And we see a love that loves you wherever you are. Your baggage, your bruises, your brokenness and all. So run the race with this love in mind. Amen? Amen. Let me pray and then I'll um, invite the ushers to come forward and collect our offering.